This is not the media. This is hell. Today, the novel coronavirus pandemic, you know, the one that Australian researchers now say spreads through the air far easier and at greater distances, lingering longer than was originally reported. The pandemic, Oxford University researchers now argue, was around long before it showed up in China and may have been found everywhere as the pathogen simply waited for the perfect environmental conditions to escape. As epidemiologist Rob Wallace told us back here in early March, yeah, that global pandemic has changed the way we view, understand, and relate to the idea of public. Our publicness affecting all the different kinds of publics, revealing to all of them the fractures within the neoliberal normal that got us here in the first place. And it's not only the pandemic that's making us reconsider all of the dominant system's shortcomings. Climate change in combination with the virus has created a moment of crisis that can change the world after the disease is under control, whenever that is. Or maybe, just maybe, that counter-public we need to challenge the hegemonic public is already being implemented and tested. We'll find out all about public, publicness, counter-publics, public politics, and these spaces and spatialities within which they exist, and how the pandemic affects all of that in a few when we talk to geographer Eugene McCann, who wrote the Society and Space article, Spaces of Publicness and the World After the Coronavirus Crisis, which you can find at societyandspace.org. Eugene is university professor of geography at Simon Fraser University, a university that's oddly overrepresented on This Is Hell. Eugene is also managing editor of Environmental and Planning C, Politics and Space, an international journal on the relations between the political and the spatial. You can find the journal at journals.sagepub, S-A-G-E-pub.com, slash home, slash E-P-C. We have a direct link to it. At our website, thisishell.com, putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a terrible business model. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex will have the question from hell for you in a moment, but for right now, Alex, how's your week going so far? Uh, it's pretty good. I, you know, I'm all in favor of companies having funny names. Uh, especially porta potty companies like uh, Drop Zone and Royal Flush, mm-hmm. but we gotta do something about great. Honey Bucket. <laughs> I, dr- I ride my bike past the Honey Bucket in the park every week and uh, or every day, and my stomach just churns every time I go by. I saw one of those at Warren Park the other day, and I uh, <laughs> as well. I the Leprechaun. I like the That's Leprechaun. Good. That's a good one, right? But yeah, the Honey Bucket. <laughs> what are they doing in that outhouse? I don't want to know. You are listening to completely listener supported. Radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now, if you want to help us with our horrible business model of being completely listener-supported, go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support where you can find all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell. There's plenty of ways uh, you can do that. One is by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time with a new monologue from me in a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. Last week, we played a 2012 interview on climate change happening far faster and its effects impacting us far quicker than was expected at the time and is still not being reported in the news media today. 
I also revealed what scares me, what is far more frightening than coronavirus or climate change to me. But you can only hear that and almost 250 other Patreon podcasts that we have done so far, all at patreon.com slash thisishell. Only way you can hear all that, subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. And this Friday, I'm going back to small-town America to report on how they are handling the murder of George Floyd. And I can tell you this. It's not going well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell from our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? <laughs> what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? <laughs> what are you screaming at a stranger in public while you're recording... <laughs> On the phone. That's a good one. I'm really looking forward to everybody's answers to that. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. You can email your answer to either of us, Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner shortly following Jeff Dorchin delivering the moment of truth. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following today's guest. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And this year we've been witnessing a lot of grief here on This Is Hell. So much so that yesterday we were supposed to give you our biannual recap of what we've learned from our guests here on the show that we do every six months. But the first half year was jam-packed with learning. So we only had time to tell you what we got rattling around our noggins from the first three months of 2020. In other words, our taking stock of what the hell has happened here on This Is Hell is going to have to become a quarterly instead of biannual report to accommodate all the ideas we engage with live daily here at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Thisishell.com. Like back in April when we figured out the best way to avoid avoid coronavirus is to withdraw oneself from the system that created the virus, and that system is capitalism, so good luck with that. In Hungary, Prime Minister Viktor Orban kept doing what he does, and that is expanding his authoritarian rule under whatever excuse is available at the time. And this time, it just happened to be the global pandemic. Cuba continues to survive and thrive in this post-Soviet era, and their humanitarian diplomacy is scoring huge points with the pandemic worldwide, while the United States is being looked down upon. In early April, guests were telling us either we shut down completely and when we do get back out, have a completely different relationship with nature, or we stay inside a lot longer, a lot more die, and the next pandemic will be awaiting us as we try to force ourselves to re-enter into the old new normal that started all this crap at the beginning. We got a report from South Korea on the discipline it took for that country to successfully combat coronavirus and how our correspondent was very worried for us back here in the U.S. because, from his experience, we lack that kind of discipline to do stuff like socially distance, wear a mask, or stay in place for any extended period of time. We had a reality check on the failed presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders that far too many of his supporters were seeing as a betrayal. The right has a plan for the post-COVID world, and their plan is fascism. The left, on the other hand, better get a plan together and fast. History didn't end like Francis Fukuyama and others were saying in the post-Soviet 1980s. It just kept sucking and kept getting worse 
and worse. We heard from our correspondent in Brazil about how the pandemic was faring under a far-right authoritarian leader, and it was going about as horribly as you would expect when a country is run by someone who is in complete denial of the virus. The nation-state will inevitably be tossed into the dustbin of history because of the coronavirus and climate change, which is a very, very good thing. COVID-19 and climate change are also the same thing, and pretending one has nothing to do with the other completely misses what the virus is all about. Another world is not only possible, but these other worlds have already succeeded on this world, and they're happening right now. It's just that the news media is doing everything they can to not only ignore them, but to make certain they don't catch on anywhere else. The Chinese Navy trolled the U.S. by sending its lone supercarrier carrier through the tra- Straits of Taiwan, while the U.S. was forced by the virus to stay in dock, embarrassingly. We are definitely not all in this together as COVID-19 has had a much more harsh and deadly impact on the poor and people of color. We spoke with those participating in mutual aid in Queens and how they keep their community going even when capitalism can't. The workplace no longer coerces you to work through pay and working conditions, but through status defining ourselves with our work. And if we aren't working, we see ourselves as nothing under neoliberalism. Our correspondent in Mexico explained how a country that has 40% of its people living in poverty responded to the pandemic. And in case you have not heard lately, it is not going well in Mexico. Meanwhile, in Greece, neo-Nazi vigilantes had already been attacking refugee camps So when, before the virus. So when the virus hit, things got really complicated, in some ways better for the refugees, and in some ways far worse. Pork is everywhere, and not only on your plate. It's even in your computer keyboard. We considered the industry's pursuit of the perfect pig, what this goal means for food production and distribution in the age of COVID. The ports of the Arabian Peninsula have been outposts for outsider empires that dominate the region through brutal colonialism for centuries. And despite that colonialism finally waning, they are still sites of power, but now for the Arabian countries that were once those ports' victims. Neoliberalism may fall victim to novel coronavirus, unless we are forced back into some kind of oppressive normal that created this whole mess. It's not only racism, misogyny, patriarchy, neoliberalism, even capitalism that plague our world. Don't forget about imperialism. But we were reminded whether it's the racial violence that killed George Floyd or it's the violence to our environment that led to the global pandemic, you can count on it all going back to the cruel system of neoliberalism. The logic of death penalty sentencing is really racist, as those who best conform to society's norms on the witness stand and whose supporters best conform in the trial audience can determine life or death and guess who does not conform to society's norms. While the rest of the news media was shocked, shocked, I tell you, at fancy high-end retail outlets having their windows smashed, we talked about the real looting taking place, and that is the looting by capital of communities of color and the poor. That shocked media reflected shocked liberals who were suddenly aghast at what they finally realized was what they called systemic racist violence that pervades policing across the United States. And those liberals were again 
trying to take over a movement started by the left. But the left won't put up with the liberals anymore, and that is especially the case with the black left and their black liberals. Stranger danger was and is not only a complete exaggeration of the dangers that strangers pose to children, but it raises kids in a world of fear where they are forced to consider at a very young age, consider themselves as the potential target for the most sensational crime imaginable. And that has really screwed up generations of kids, so stop with the stranger danger already. Yeah, we're definitely not all in this together, especially when it comes to climate change, where the rich envision a world where they are walled off from the miserable rabble suffering through global warming. But there is a left-wing climate realism, and it wants to sync this walled-off wealthy mentality with the decolonial politics of a world relieved from social, economic, and ecological despair and exhaustion. Sure, we should abolish policing, sure, fine, but more importantly, we need to abolish the conditions that police are there to manage in the first place, that is, those who are poor. If you want to end the reasoning that the powerful use policing, then end inequality. The United States does have a state religion, and it is mammonism, the faith in and love of money, and anyone who doesn't love and believe in that money is a heretic. With the precarity of neoliberalism, the mounting challenges caused by climate change and the spreading of a global pandemic killing hundreds of thousands, we wondered what adding to that mix a murder of a black man at the hands of police could mean, what the outcome could be after the murder of George Floyd, and only one thing was certain. To some degree, change was going to happen. It was definitely going to happen. We considered what defunding the police would mean, how it could lead to the rich just hiring their own uh, far more brutal police force that lacks com any kind of oversight, which means that we really need, what we really need is community policing. It's not as dangerous to be a cop as we are told, and they are far worse at solving crime than we'd expect. In fact, a cop's life of seeking out trouble to stop it, constantly putting their lives on the line for us, is nearly as dangerous, almost as likely to end in homicide, as it is for the average American male. Not male of color, just any dude walking around. The feminist war on crime only sought punishment as a solution to all of the misogyny and racism women face every day, instead of addressing the root causes and rooted out said misogyny. Deportation in the United States today takes many forms, invisible to outsiders in the media, and most are deported not through the formal process, but by force, coercion, and fear, simply scaring immigrants into leaving, which creates immigrant communities around the country that live in fear 24-7. Sure, imperialism is bad for those who are colonized, but eventually it comes back to bite the colonial power in the ass, like an imperialist boomerang smacking the old empire in the back of the head when it least expects it. The, munis the municipalist citizen platform of Barcelona and Camus is facing unique challenges to the alternative system they've created that has depended on physical contact among its supporters. So this pandemic really gives them a distinct perspective that nobody else is really witnessing at this time. And if you want to understand the Republican Party, the right, Fox News, then you have to understand that the anti-abortion movement defines and permeates every aspect of reactionaries who use the movement to promote white supremacy. See? We weren't goofing around in those first six months. This 
is hell. Coming up, climate change and now the pandemic are forcing us to reconsider what the public means to us. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, Alex, please repeat this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. I forgot to mention that earlier, which you can get right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The pandemic sent us inside, quarantined from the public, alone, isolated from a human need that is unlike any other. Unable to be together, our relationship with what the public is, how we understand the public, how we relate with it, and the spaces and spatialities that exist within it has changed. So what kind of public or publics do we have? What is meant by publicness? And what kind of public do we need to confront both climate change and the pandemic? Here to answer far more complicated versions of those questions, probably far more wordy, knowing me, our guest is geographer Eugene McCann, who wrote the Society and Space article, Spaces of Publicness and the World After the Coronavirus Crisis, which you can find at societyandspace.org. Welcome to This Is Hell, Eugene. Hi, Chuck. Eugene is a university professor of geography at Simon Fraser University. He researches public or policy mobilities, urban politics, harm reduction, public space, development, governance, and planning. You can find out more about Eugene at his website, uh, which we have linked at our website. It's emccangeog.wordpress.com. Again, we have directly linked at our website. And you can follow him on Twitter at EJMcCann. I first want to get some terms out of the way. You begin by writing how political theorist and socialist feminist Iris Marion Young and social scientist and geographer Doreen Massey argued that publicness and public spaces best support a socially, uh, socially just society when they promote complex, somewhat challenging, and sometimes chaotic thrown togetherness. And your article explores mm-hmm. if and how publicness in general and notions of publics and counterpublics specifically might help in thinking through this the crisis of the pandemic, its intersection with other crises and possibilities for alternative futures. So I want to get some of these terms out of the way so everybody understands what we are talking about. What do you mean by publics and counterpublics? What is an example of a public and what is an example of a counterpublic? public? Uh- yeah, these are um, these are really central questions, Chuck, and I appreciate your interest in them. Um, for for political theorists, uh, publics are um, groupings of people who don't necessarily have to uh, be close together. They don't have to be in proximity to each other, but um, they are proximate in their interests and in their vision of the world. So through communication. They could be face-to-face or it could be through uh, various types of communication technology. Uh, these, these people come together um, and get to and know each other as, and know themselves as being, a, as, as being a collective with a particular vision of how the world should be. Um, so there, there are many examples of, of, of publics um, at, at a large scale. You can even think about, about the nation. 
um, as as kind of an invented or imagined community. So there's a there's a book by a scholar called Benedict Anderson of that with that title, Imagined Communities, um, which argues that that nations uh, come together and be, and and know themselves as as a single entity, a public. Um, through through communication, he talks about print culture, so uh, so newspapers and so on. Um, but then uh, then we also have this idea of counterpublics, which comes from um, is most most closely associated, at least, with a, a, a political theorist called Nancy Fraser, um, who who talks about counterpublics as as being those groups who have ideas that are often uh, subjugated in one way or another. Um, so these these would be ideas for for a different type of world from the hegemonic or the dominant type. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe groups who who are um, who are anti neoliberal, anti capitalist, um, anti racist, for example, or or, or decolonial. Um, these these are groups who who come together and know themselves in similar ways to publics, but but are particularly focused around um, alternative visions and 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 uh, developing alternative ways of, of thinking and doing the world. So how difficult is it to find that counterpublic under neoliberalism? How much more subjugated are those counterpublics under neoliberalism? I think it's a, that's an that's an interesting question. I think I think um, the answer, I suppose, the answer in a classic academic sense would be that it's complicated, or that it's both and. Um, in in some ways, yes, the, the the neoliberal hegemony has has created a situation where, for many people, um, the notion of a of a an, an anti capitalist world, for example, or or to use an example that's very current at the moment, a a world a world where justice works entirely differently. So we have where we have abolished perhaps the the police and prisons, for example. Um, those ideas for for many people just seem to be so. Out there, for want of a better term, that they are—they're really not even worth discussing or entertaining, um, and and certainly, certainly in the context of neoliberalism itself, the the, the dominant ideas of of competitiveness, individual choice, and individual self responsibility, um, the 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 state being a bad thing. Um, in, in different ways from what anarchists might say, the state is a bad thing necessarily. But um, those those have become such um, such such dog, dogmatic um, terms that that is hard to see beyond them. But at the same time, all we have to do is look around ourselves, right? I mean, we have we have examples of of numerous um, counter publics, counter hegemonic sets of ideas and practices uh, from from mutual aid groups to uh, to the, the abolitionist movement uh, and defund the police and so on um, to to alternative views of of uh, of how to address environmental uh, crises and 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 many others. Uh, Fraser actually talks in in her um, discussions of counter public. She uses a, a more historical and classic example, which is which is the feminist movement in the twentieth century. 
um, which developed its own spaces in which to uh, to to uh, to communicate, uh, both again face to face, like feminist bookstores and lecture series and so on, and then also through um, more distant types of technology or, or spanning technologies and, and communications that spanned distance, whether that be um, the circulation of magazines or or, or other things like that. Um, she also talks about how in that process then that particular social movement um, or or counter public uh, how how they developed their own language and brought um, new words terms concepts to the general the general public if you like um, and and terms that were were seen as as kind of strange and odd at first but have become central to to all of our lexicons so we can think of something as simple as sexism um, but also things like marital rape or the double shift. These were not terms that have always been sort of accepted in a in a, in a broad, um, even liberal uh, sort of uh, discussion of of uh, society, but they were brought there by active an active counter public. And we can think about something like abolition or defunding, and uh, in, in that context today uh, as being a similar. Um, indication that that counter publics are out there continually working sometimes in, in public sometimes visible sometimes not um, and developing new ideas new words new and uh, new ideas lying around which which of course is a, is originally Mil Milton Friedman the, one of the fathers of, of neoliberalism Milton Friedman talked about the notion of having ideas developed and having them lying around so that they could be picked up and deployed when a crisis emerges. And Naomi Klein uh, in The Intercept uh, recently has, has talked um, quite clearly about how that can also work for the left, that if ideas are already out there, like like abolition, which is, you know, Angela Davis, the geographer Ruth, uh, Ruth Wilson-Gilmore and others have been developing for a long time in an academic setting and, and within certain smaller political um, political realms, those ideas have now burst into a much wider discussion. So I had a couple of terms I want to ask you about, but before I do, I just want to follow up on that. So does does neoliberalism then cause and repress counter politics? Because if that is the case, that it, it can encourage them as well as stop them at the same, trying to stop them at the same time, what does that reveal to you about neoliberalism as a means of control? How well can neoliberalism control the public through its privatization policies, through its austerity, when it seems like it not only does it uh, repress counterpublics, but it also seems to motivate them? Mm -hmm. um, I think that... Uh there are, many, there are many ways to think about neoliberalism. Um, one way we can think about it, perhaps, is as a, a concept and a practice that's directed towards the state. We often think of neoliberalism as, as an, uh, in terms of the economy, but in many ways, neoliberalism is about the state. The, the, there's a there's always been a there's always been an obsession about the state and neoliberalism since the since the beginning. It's, be, it's been about you know reducing the state and uh, and so on. But then at the, at the same time, um, much less 
much less well discussed is the fact that that neoliberalism really can't operate without a facilitator of state um, to to create many of the conditions such as deregulation and and so on that allow uh, or the or or another one is is reducing tax rates. Um, that those those conditions are set by by the state and uh, and in so in in creating them um, the neoliberalism the the supposed free market anti-state operation of the economy and society is actually fully dependent um, on on the state. So in in that sense, then um, we. We can we can think of, we can think about that relationship as you said as a, as a relationship of control, um, and that control in some cases is about is about power over um, economic policy. Um, so that's a way in which our lives are controlled through austerity and so on, as you said. Uh, but it's also it's also an ideological and hegemonic control in many ways, uh, where as I said earlier. Um, our imaginations, uh, you know, as a as a general public, our imaginations of what is possible, what is even what is even not laughable, um, is is continually constrained by a particular very narrow notion of of the 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 individualistic entrepreneur and the and the individual um, person with with choice and responsibility who must strive to to get to the top of whatever ranking or or. Or, or hierarchy they, they happen to be embedded in. Um, so, though, so, so on that side, all of those things are, are controlling, disciplining. Um, but, but at the same time, it's important, as you would know, that, and, and I'm sure your your listeners know that um, the the notion of hegemony always suggests that it's that hegemony is never complete. There, there is there are always cracks within it. There are always opportunities and contradictions within it, and at some points, those those uh, crises and contradictions get to the point where where things get shaken, and where and where alternatives start to have an opportunity to to uh, become more prominent. And and we see that um, in the in the notion I've, I've mentioned this a few times now, but the notion of defunding the police. But my paper uh, that that you were referring to earlier was published um, just a couple of days after after um, George Floyd was murdered, um, and and it doesn't it doesn't talk then so much about that this bubbling up of this particular moment. Um, but on the other hand, it does talk a lot about um, examples of alternatives that have become. Certainly thinkable, um, as opposed to unthinkable, as a result of the crisis. So we can think about notions of universal basic income. Uh, so in the US, uh, programs like the PPP program, for example, would you know would might lead to, uh, or could be at least lead us to think about the notion of having a universal basic income, eviction protections, uh, paid sick leave. Um, valuing public health care and public health care workers, free meals, uh, free public transit, all these all of these things, even within a, neo, a neoliberal hegemony, have suddenly become things that uh, politicians, more so in some countries than others, maybe more so in Canada, where I'm based, than in than the US, but where politicians, to, to one extent or another, are having to uh, take these things seriously because of the pressures um, that have been placed on them by this crisis in a structural sense, but also by the the, the counter publics, the social movements that are be- that have been pressing them for for relief from eviction, for example. 
Now, this may have been written before or write, uh, published right about around the time of uh, George Floyd's murder, but at the same time, uh, this definitely foreshadows much, what, much of what you write definitely foreshadows what could take place if another crisis had been added into the mix. So mm-hmm. I think it still is very, very timely. You write many Thanks. of the current public demonstrations are politically progressive, such as the free them all car protests outside immigrant de- detention centers mm-hmm. and protests against police brutality and systemic racism, although mm-hmm. others are not. The social and psychological value of public assembly has also been demonstrated by people who support physical distancing but have nonetheless gathered in part to enjoy the benefits of green space and community. It's hard being isolated. We are drawn together socially, politically, publicly. So it's very difficult to have that kind of publicness when we are supposed to be quarantined. Does isolation tend to lead to a certain kind of politics? Does isolation create conditions that are particularly positive for any specific kind of politics? Do they tend more toward socialism or fascism? I th- I think um, in in general uh, isolation is is tied with a, a, a sort of atomization where we where we we um, draw into ourselves uh, either either as individuals or or with a, a narrow sense of family and community um, and I think it, in in many ways that. Uh, then promotes many of the uh, many of the sort of fascistic uh, visions of the world that we we see around us. Uh, that that we are we are us. We are we are most um, uh, most valuable, most most righteous, perhaps most in need of protection. There's, a, there's often a sort of mobilising of a of a of a sense of injustice. Uh, for for people who 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 follow those those kind of um, ideologies, um, but at the, but at the same time, again, I would say that that it's that it's both and because even even in the context of uh, of being withdrawn, um, being asked to stay home, and so on, and even in contexts where people haven't decided that the, the the political stakes, the social and moral stakes, are so high that they're going to um, they're going to burst out of those of those bounds that they're being asked to help uh, to hold and and go and protest uh, um, as people have done across the world in in recent weeks. Um, even when the, when people dis- are not quite as as um, motivated as as that as to break out and go in public space there's still the context of uh, of um, of communication technologies of, of social media and so on and and I think it's it's very clear um, the, the a good example I think is the climate movement so I, I start my essay with a with a sort of very probably quite obvious uh, contrast where I, again I was writing in the period of lockdown prior to the the current upsurge in demonstrations and the and the contrast I made at the beginning in the essay was thinking back to like a year ago when the streets were filled in many cities all across the world uh, with climate protests um, inspired by by uh, Greta Thunberg and, and others um, to come out and to express to use public space uh, to express a different vision of what the, the world's environmental future and, and all the other futures should be, um, to express concerns about the about the fate of the world and about the way it's being it's being ruined, um, 
And and then I contrast that with the sort of eerie silence of the closed up streets of lockdown. But later in the essay, I also point out that while, was, while those particular kind of classic public spaces, the public spaces of streets and plazas and parks and so on, have been have been sh- shut to us. Um, and again, you know, future further events have, have have shown that you know people will break out of those bounds. But when those when those spaces are not available to us for face to face politics and and social interaction, there is still there is still uh, social media, and it, it may be easy to sort of be skeptical about the publicness of of social media. Clearly, clearly, social media is not a public space in the classic sense it's very deeply and problematically privatized for all I know all the we know all these issues around Facebook and and, and so on but at the same time it's a space um, of a type it's a particular type of space where publics can connect and where publics can emerge and we see that with the climate movement in the way that as those spaces have been closed off to that movement um, it has continued online uh, certainly my timeline every on, on Twitter every Friday is populated by um, by people taking selfies of themselves with their school strike for uh, for climate and similar other types of uh, of, of banners and 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 um, signs so so the the connection still goes on. Um, so even within isolation, I, th- I think I've tried to, I've maybe against my normal way of thinking, but I've tried in that essay to be as hopeful as possible. Um, and even in these dark times, I would want to hold out hope for the ways in which people um, are intent on coming together, even if it is in a slightly different form. I know that you're trying to be positive in the article, uh, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to get to some of the negativity of it just for a second. You you begin your essay with one of my favorite all time songs by one of my favorite all time bands, uh, an epigraph yeah. from the Specials Ghost Town. Do you remember the good old days before the Ghost Town? I love that song. And as you write, the song released in 1981 during a severe economic and social crisis in the United Kingdom alludes to the unemployment, neo Nazi violence. That's something that people forget about that time and urban riots that were consequent of economic restructuring and nascent neoliberalism. You then cite songwriter Jerry Dammers interviewed in 2002 recalling that the country was falling apart, all the shops were shuttered up, everything was closing down, all the industries, it was clear that something was very, very wrong. And you add, not surprisingly, Ghost Town's refrain harkens back to the idealized good old days. Dammers' description of the streets of Thatcherite Britain resonates with our current crisis. But should we yearn for their neoliberal social relations and built environments of the pre-pandemic city no we shouldn't what do you believe would and could happen if we do as it appears we will at least try to and that's try to get back to the good old days of neoliberalism what can we expect if that continues to be the goal oh my god <laughs> in some ways i don't even want to think about that i i say i i will think about it but i i I say in the essay that that a lot of my thoughts in this essay came from the fact that I was teaching undergrads uh, about cities in my geography program here in uh, uh, um, Simon Fraser, and and I was te- I was teaching them from January through until until um, and until April, and of course during that time, then I spent time in many of the classes tracking the rise of the coronavirus uh, from Wuhan and so on, and we looked videos of early on of uh, the deserted streets of Wuhan and so on. And as um, as the, the crisis uh, intensified and as death tolls rose, 
I became increasingly negative early in the class and it was all death and destruction and doom. And, it, and in some ways it was my students were, like some of my students anyway, were saying, well, you know, is, the, is, is there nothing better? And that was when I tried to come up with some of these ideas about like, how, how people are trying to do things and envision um, better futures. But let's say that doesn't happen. And I think I think you're absolutely right to, to look on the negative because um, the power clearly with with people um, whose vested interests are in in maintaining and perhaps even further intensifying the uh, the the character of neoliberalism all we have to do for example is look at the statistics that have come out over the course of the the, the covid crisis about the the net worth of, of billionaires um, and and the people who were obscenely rich to begin with um, have made out like bandits uh, from from this crisis. So uh, a negative a negative future, a future that goes back to the the negative normal, if if you like, and the bad old days, um, is is a future where where wealth will be will be further concentrated, uh, where where city. I'm I'm an urban geographer and an urban scholar, so I, I tend to think in terms of cities. Where um, where cities will become increasingly polarized, or where certain cities, uh, we can take the example for example for example of San Francisco in the U.S. I think to a great extent increasingly Vancouver in in, in my context, um, where these cities become uh, places that are are evacuated of all but um, the wealthiest people. So the case of San Francisco was interesting. Interesting in comparison to New York, there's a there's a, a journalist who who writes for Curbed um, called Alyssa Walker who wrote a really nice piece about sort of urban planning and urban designers' fantasies uh, for the future of of after the coronavirus and how those fantasies were um, were quite um, were quite limited and and and, and quite 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 supremacist in, in some cases. And she talks about the the contrast between the number of cases of um, of COVID in New York versus San Francisco, and the way that um, some people in the the urban planning and design community have have then had a discussion about well, it's about uh, you know it's all about relative density and it's how, about how well this cities are, are, are um, designed and, and maybe there are things about New York and the density of New York that are that are um, causing the 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 health problem but as as Alyssa Walker points out actually the problem is that uh, or the difference is that in New York there are still a variety of people of different classes and and, uh, and races um, many of whom as we know have been have been much much more or much disproportionately affected by um, by the virus whereas in San Francisco you have a city that is increasingly becoming a place that is a, a is a resort for the for the wealthiest um, and 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 white people uh, who are very wealthy and those and those people are much less susceptible to the virus for for various uh, social determinant reasons um, so so in in that context then we we have we have some San Francisco, perhaps as as an example of of um, a, a place that is becoming a, a, in, increasingly narrow and uh, in its in its social and, and cultural and economic um, makeup. Uh, and is that the kind of world we want? It's certainly not the kind of world that I want. It's it, it's not the kind of city I want. A city of of um, a city of uniformity 
rather than a city of diversity. Um, I, w I would prefer to have a city that is similar to the types that um, the political theorist Iris Marion Young and the geographer, the political and, and social geographer Doreen Massey talk about, where um, we can assume that when we go out on the street, we're going to we're going to meet people who are very different from us, and it's not always going to be comfortable. Um, and I I speak as a white man, and it, and it's easier for me to be to be slightly uncomfortable without feeling fearful in cities. And I understand that. Um, Public spaces for some people can be quite uh, can be quite problematic, but I think overall a political goal of diversity of thrown togetherness, as Massey talks about, um, is a much more positive future than the negative future of privatisation, individualism, um, cities that are barricaded and 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 um, are are inaccessible for many many of the people who live in society. That to me is the dark future that um, hopefully we won't go back to. And you talk about a webinar that was held in the midst of the pandemic mm -hmm. with public health experts and placemakers addressing the yes. organizers' assertion that public spaces are essential services and discussed how to support safe public space. The panelists pointed to the cases of Oakland and Milan to advocate for the permanent establishment of many more closed streets, slow streets, and pedestrian and cycling lanes. This all sounds great. Mm -hmm. They concluded by arguing that parks should largely remain open during lockdown, that public spaces mm -hmm. should be funded at the same or higher level in the future and that governments should avoid stigmatizing public activities during the crisis. But you add, while there is much to support in the placemaking movement's general vision, and it, it does mm. sound good, it must be considered critically for its blind spots and design obsessions. Placemaking is troublingly silent on public space's crucial role as a political space in which people gather to represent and advocate for their interests. Do you think that's purposeful do public policymakers uh, is policy as placemaking currently about making the public space one that is not political or is that maybe unintentional and simply a reflection of the age of neoliberalism within which we live which undermines collective organizing and action or even imagining it yeah i think um i think i think to a great extent it is unintentional not entirely, but I think I think for many people who are advocates of of so-called placemaking and and these and these kind of ideas, um, the the neo the neoliberalism and also um, there was a, a a planner in Canada called Amina Yazin who wrote a very powerful piece recently um, about the white supremacy uh, in in planning and design. Um, the neoliberalism and white supremacy are so embedded, as I was talking about earlier, in the way in which we think, the way in which uh, people who call themselves urbanists, not in the way that I would say it, but in a, in a sort of you know design and planning sense, their um, basic assumptions and what is possible to think about and what, on the other hand, is unthinkable are so embedded and ingrained that it's, it doesn't need to be um, purposefully thought of. So, for example, um, I, I mean, Yazin in, in, in a, an article recently um, talks about the notion of, of crime prevention through environmental design, uh, which is a very popular notion in, in, um, in uh, planning and suggests, and suggests that we need more eyes on the street to make the streets safer for the public. Um, and she points out that, uh, as others have too, 
um, that, that there are many problems with that. Um, some people being observed on the street, it's not a big deal to them, like a, you know, a white and middle class guy like me. But for many other people, being observed on the street is, is clearly severely problematic and it leads to other consequences. Um, so, so what are we talking about when we say that we need more observation on the street, maybe even as far as more cameras and so on as well, which although that's outside of this, this crime prevention idea I was just talking about. But these these surveillance streets, what it, what does that mean um, uh, for for different groups? What it what it suggests is that there is no single public. Um, and and I think one of the one of the fundamental um, assumptions in a lot of especially global north um, placemaking ideas is is that they are serving the public good as if there is a single public, um, when actually, of course, we know very, very well, and a lot of this conversation has been about how there are multiple publics um, and they don't always necessarily come to consensus about the use of public space. So there's a lot of talk in the placemaking literature, almost a romanticisation of the idea that if places, if public spaces are designed well, people will choose to come to them and spend time in them and create vibrant spaces. Well, that very notion of choice then, I think, is an embedded and un uncritically analysed um, sort of notion of, of neoliberalism and, and individualism. There's a sense that, well, people people choose to hang out in public spaces. Well, of course, as we know, um, there are many people who have publicness forced upon them because they have no place else to be. Um, they're unhoused, they're marginally housed and so on. Um, and, then, and then related to that is that the planning profession tends to have quite a strong notion of a, or adherence to a thin notion of consensus, that we can all reach some sort of consensus. And that there will be a single a single publicness in that in that sense, and that is a, that's depoliticizing um, in in the in the sense that it it, it sees conflict as a bad thing, um, and political conflict and political political debate is is not a bad thing, um, but in a in a neoliberal world it tends to be. It tends to be seen as being something that we should try to avoid, and that instead of that, the most we should ever talk about and debate are are, des are design elements. For example, it's like you know we can talk we can talk about the proportion of the, of of the size of a, of curb on a street um, relative to the size of 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 the the facade of the building on that sidewalk, um, and we can debate and and think very seriously about that. But let's not talk about uh, something like white supremacy in a planning meeting because that's beyond the pale. And I think uh, I, th I think that sort of deeply in embedded and an unintentional um, aspect of of what planning allows itself to envision and 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 then also unconsciously stops itself from envisioning um, is a is a problem that that um, planners like Yazin, uh, like a, another planner uh, in Canada, uh, Jay Pitter, and others have have spoken very strongly about as as something that we must address. Um, the the current moment, Black Lives Matter, and so on, are very much a planning and design moment as well.
And you write that the climate crisis, the housing crisis, the drug crisis, extreme economic inequality, and their unevenly classed and racialized impacts all existed before the virus. The pandemic is an Mm -hmm. X-ray image revealing the fractures that have long caused pain. And you point out that the public sphere is full of debates about which companies and economic sectors should be subsidized or bailed out and about adequate taxation of the obscenely rich. The crisis has also created opportunities for these counterpublics to intertwine through their common concerns and approaches. They work, uh, their work has meant that counter-hegemonic ideas are already lying around to be implemented. Why are counter-politics, uh, or publics, I should say, why are counter-publics only now seeing those common concerns and approaches? Why weren't they seen with climate change alone? Why did they need, in addition, the pandemic, and now, I know it's after your writing, but in addition, the murder of George Floyd. Um, well, I think I think this this is not the first time that there have been confluences of interests, um, and also and also um, debates and schisms, right? So we can uh, we can think about, for example, you know, we use the example of the of the feminist movement before. Um, where, where over the years there have been debate, debates about the, the character of that movement, there have been waves of feminism. There have been um, there have there have been uh, feminisms that are more socialist and less socialist, and and so on. And then, of course, of course, currently um, there are there are debates around um, trans exclusivity in in the context of 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 feminism and and of course and, and there are schisms along lines of race in terms of in, term, in terms of feminism too um so so in the in the history of, of you know society of, of of politics and so on there are periods where um movements come together where they where they have um where they have different different visions um and where they connect with different other counter publics. So, for, exa- for example, you know, like uh, socialist feminism might might have more affinity to um, to to um, to other counter publics that are emphasising um, class disparity in society, for example, or or um, and and you can think of other examples like that. Um, what I would say is that in in general, crises, not even not specifically this moment of of multiple crises, but but crises in general at different points in history tend to be tend to be opportunities not only for the right um, but also for the left uh, to see connections to see common uh, as I say in, um, in in the essay to see common concerns in ways that when um, they are focused perhaps on their own uh, particular interests as a specific council public or movement they, they may be less um, engaged with uh, so so I when I talk when I talk about um, about these these various counter publics seeing their common concerns and what and working across each other, um, I'm, I'm referring in there to a, an excellent article by uh, Rebecca Solnit that was published in the Guardian, um, where she tries to work through the ways in which these these movements might um, might find ways to uh, to engage together. Do you see that uh, Capitol Hill occupied protest as one of those? 
potential plans implemented? Because you cite political scientist Jane Mansbridge writing in mm-hmm. 1996 that counterpolitics often oscillate between protected enclaves in which they can explore their ideas in an environment of mutual encouragement and more hostile but also broader surroundings in which they can test those ideas against the reigning reality. And you add the shift is happening now. The climate public's recent momentum was generated by actions in public space, but currently, with crowds no longer on the streets protesting climate change, it continues to organize online. And you mentioned the Green New Deal. So do you see that Capitol Hill-occupied protests as one of those plans implemented, you know, another one of those tests, those examples that people are trying to find for an alternative post-COVID? Exactly. I think I think so. I I think um, I think that that particular moment in Seattle is is first of all it's an example of of why public spaces in the in the narrower traditional sense of streets and parks and so on uh, as there are, as there, there were there on Capitol Hill um, are are it's an example of how essential those spaces are as political spaces because the uh, the chop. Um, became for for its uh, you know in the period of its relatively short period of its existence, it became a a, a demonstration project, right? For for want of a better term, perhaps it it, it was a um, it was a space where people have come together to first of all to represent their their political opinion of of how a society could be different, um, but also to practice that. Uh, through, for example, free free food distribution and, and other things that have, have been going on, um, models of of, uh, of of deliberation and democracy and decision making and so on that have happened uh, in that space, um, and it's you know it's 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 kind of probably re- you know it's kind of reached its its end in that space. Maybe it would maybe not not much longer to go, but. What it does is it, it's something that's going to that's going to remain in people's minds. Um, it's going to be written about, talked about. It's going to be an it's an example of of these ideas becoming more than ideas and becoming um, embedded in place for even a short period of time. Um, and therefore, um, there is a sense that this could be done again and perhaps scaled. We have been speaking with geographer Eugene McCann, who wrote the Society in Space article, Spaces of Publicness and the World After the Coronavirus Crisis, which you can find at societyandspace.org. Eugene is a university professor of geography at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He is managing editor of Environment and Planning C, Politics and Space, an international journal of critical, heterodox, and interdisciplinary research into the relations between the political and the spatial. You can find a link to that journal at our website. You can find out more about Eugene at his website, emccangeog.wordpress.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at ejmccann. We have all of that information at our website, thisishell.com. One last question for you, Eugene, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is... The question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write reactions to the pandemic suggest that just futures will need to be generated intersectionally through various crises, claims, and spatial contexts. Why does the pandemic reveal the need for that intersectionality when it reveals simultaneously that we are not all in this together with the pandemic revealing all of society's disparities and inequalities. How can it reveal both the need for intersectionality 
and how we are definitely not all in this together? Oh, man, that is a hellish question. Um, I, the intersectionality I'm thinking of is, is, is very much a left intersectionality. Um, I, I am not in any way interested in uh, the obscenely rich, uh, except for them uh, being taxed to a much greater uh, level than they are right now. Um, instead, what I'm thinking about is the intersectionality of, of um, feminist movement, inter- anti-racist movement, um, the environmental movement, uh, for example, being a movement that has been criticised over the years for being middle class, for being predominantly middle class and white, um, and and that's that's somewhat fair. Uh, that that movement now is 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 not only that. Um, I think the the protests of last year were very interesting in the way that they were um, they were led. They were the the figureheads of them uh, weren't weren't only uh, Greta Thunberg, but were also a number of young women uh, of colour from around the world. Um, so when I talk about intersectionality, I'm talking about a progressive politics that um, takes seriously that that notion um, uh, from from Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, to to work at those intersections to develop coalitions and to identify uh, problems to be addressed. Uh, so so certainly not all of us, not everyone in society is going to be part of those intersections, but um, for me, at least the people who matter are. Eugene, I really enjoyed this writing. I'm going to check out your journal more so because this really is a fascinating topic for me. And uh, I'm going to look into some of the other people that you've cited here as potential guests for our show. And I'm going to bug you in the future because if you have any suggestions for future guests to continue this conversation, even if it's yourself, uh, (laughs) we'd love to get those suggestions from you because I think that this is a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Chuck. All right. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. Money is evil. Capitalism is evil. This is hell. This week's question from hell is whatever Alex says it is. Alex, what do you say this week's question from hell is? Oh, sorry. I was checking my privilege over there, and I forgot to hit the button. Uh, This week's question from hell is, what are you screaming in public at a stranger while they record you on their phone. What are you screaming at a stranger in public while they record you on their phone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell Wednesday, This Is Hell Medical Face Mask, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you ju- you have to have your answer in by end of show Thursday because we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Alex do we have any listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh yeah, we got a bunch. Chriselle says, "Your hair smells nice." <laughs> what are you screaming at a public? What are you screaming in public at a stranger while they record you on their phone? Andrew S says, "I have a mean schizophrenia demon in my head. My demon racks me with profanity. My demon, my demon tells me lies and says I'm a jerk, a bum, an a hole. My demon keeps me from joy bus riding by torturing me." Rock over London, rock on Chicago, Kinkos. It's the copy center. <laughs> That's a lot of references to Wesley. Christopher W says, Soylent Green is people. Jonathan R <laughs> says, Francis Bacon. Thumbs up. Oh, it's because I used the Francis Bacon <laughs> image in that uh, post. Uh, Warren L says, F slash 5.6 at 1 slash 1.25 and keep your elbows in, damn it. That's a photography <laughs> reference. Yeah, stop. Uh, Janet W says, Your dog just crap on my lawn. Pick it up. <laughs> 
Mike J says, they're already here. Help, you're next. They're coming, they're coming. Bruce B says, put your phone down while you're driving, you friggin' idiot. <laughs> Leslie P says, 1968 called, it wants its civil unrest back. Awesome. Michael D says, Lego, my ego. Benjamin C says, I'm not an elephant. I'm not an animal. I'm a human being. I'm a man. <laughs> Dan O says, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Lisa B says, yeah. where did you get those shoes? <laughs> Dan T says, Freebird. And also, Dan T also says, Ghislaine Maxwell didn't kill herself. Dan K says, why don't you love me anymore? <laughs> and finally, Walter M says, this is hell. Alex will have more of your sensational answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of a This Is Hell Medical Face Mask Thursday after Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. You can see that mask right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Alex, who's on tomorrow's show? Uh, tomorrow, Craig Hetherington will be on to talk about his book from Duke University Press, The Government of Beans, Regulating Life in the Age of Monocrops. Tune into tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Or listen to the podcast posted around 2 p.m. Chicago time to hear more of your answers to this week's question from hell and tomorrow's guest. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I want to thank this week. I want to thank our guest today, Eugene McCann, as well as thanks to Alex for producing. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.